The original cast is brought to you this week by Monumental Theatre Company's Songs for a New World, now available to stream on demand at monumentaltheatre.org. Whenever my world falls apart, I never lose hope or lose heart. Whatever the form of the storm that may brew, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is the new artistic lead at Flying V Theater. She's a projections designer. She's a lot of things. She's a director. She's all kinds of stuff. It is Kelly Colburn, everybody. Oh, hi. Hello. Hi, everybody. How you doing? I'm I'm doing well. <laughs> it's, it's 8.30. We're surviving. <laughs> we are holding it together. We are existing, <laughs> coexisting. And uh, we have come together this eve to discuss dirty, rotten scoundrels. I'll make it easy. Remember what they really want is what we really want is me. Me. did dirty rotten scoundrels come into your life <laughs> okay well uh i'm pretty sure that i saw the original cast with my family back in the day so i guess that was in 2004 or something mm-hmm. um and it was you know something that was on uh not show ticks uh what is it when you stand in line uh for the tickets like in new york try to get yeah, up TKTS. in New York. Was, yeah, TKTS. Yeah, TKTS. Mm-hmm. Um, so we stood in line. We saw a bunch of stuff. And I think probably my mom or my dad chose it. We sat down uh, and got through the entire show. And it was so delightful. Like, it's one of my not only it's one of my favorite musicals, not only because it's hilarious and I love David Yazbek's music, but I just have this memory of like turning to my father, like he was sitting on my left and he's laughing hysterically throughout the entire <laughs> thing and laughing so hard that he's crying that like no sound is coming out of his mouth. It's just oh, sort wow. of like yucking and like gasping for air. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and just... You know, I think it was it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, my parents are human and the things they like are the things I like. And, mm-hmm. oh, that's cool. Yeah. Like, we both are enjoying this at the same time. And I'm not embarrassed by them. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you? Okay. If it's too... I'm assuming I must have seen it in 2004. Okay. I, I was six years old. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, Excellent I must have answer. Been... Excellent answer. <laughs> <laughs> I must have been 14 or 15. Okay. So you're in high school. Yeah. High yeah. school. Old enough so to be embarrassed like, by your parents, though. Yeah. Old enough to be embarrassed by my parents and old enough to, like, not be scared by the some of the risque types of comedy that are... Oh, you found that thing. scary at a younger age or, or at an older age? You found that scary? <laughs> well, I think I enjoyed it and I wasn't like, oh, are my parents like, like, how are they reacting to them using curse words or talking about these things? Sure. You know? <laughs> so you were fine. You were cool. You're PG-13. I was cool. You were cool. Always You're, cool. Right. Cool. <laughs> at six, I was at cool. At six, you were super cool. No, the first musical I did see was Les Mis, which I know you've done on this podcast yes, many ma'am. a time. Yes, yes. Um, but I think I was seven when I first saw it. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's not atypical, I think, for yeah. people to see Les Mis when they're 
honestly too young. I mean, I definitely was running around pretending to be Gavroche for, you know, at least five years. Sure, sure, sure. I did have the realization the other day. This is independent. Like, this is a tangent thought. We'll get back to Dirty Rounds Counters in a second. But I was talking to somebody on another podcast about the fact that I don't trust Uber. I never Uber (laughs) anywhere and Uh won't. And somebody was like, why? And I said, because two reasons. One, it solves a problem to me that didn't need solving. Like, we have taxis. I get they're Mm -hmm. expensive. Like, that. But so, like, but like, they'd already existed. But then B, I think I'm a child of the 80s. I was raised not to get into a stranger's car. That was like drilled into me over and over and over again. Never get in a strange person's car. And there's something in me that's like, I am not getting in a strange person's car. I'm just not doing it. Like, (laughs) you, I will walk. I'm fine. Like, no big deal. I will walk through a scary neighborhood before I get into a stranger's car. It just will not happen. So, yeah, yeah, I wonder how much of that. It's all connected. (laughs) An additional tangent, another thing that freaked me out about taxis or Ubers or any strangers' cars in general Uh was the bone collector. Did you ever see that? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. It is funny how movies can ruin you for things, like everyday average things. (laughs) Yeah. But musicals like Dirty Rotten Scoundrels (laughs) just make you want to be a con artist. Nicely done. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. So hang on. Before we get too deep into it, we should probably say what this musical is. So do you think you could summarize the plot of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? Uh, Sparing none of the gross parts? (laughs) I will say that I am notoriously terrible at summarizing anything, Um, but okay, so Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, the musical, with music and lyrics by David Yazbek uh, and book by Jeffrey Lane, (laughs) thank you Wikipedia, (laughs) Um, is based on the 1988 film that has Michael Caine and uh, Steve Martin in it, Um, but essentially it's about a, a couple of con artists on the French Riviera one is sort of this older, suave, more elegant con artist, and the other one is kind of more like a like a hustler. Um, and the two of them decide to team up, or rather, uh, like see who's the better con artist by conning a young American ingenue who shows up on the French Riviera, to, like as a you know a summer away. Mm-hmm. Um, hilarity ensues. <laughs> Love <laughs> happens. French Riviera, amazing music. <laughs> <laughs> and a beautiful twist at the end. Yes, very much so. So yeah, that's a, that's a good summary. I like that. That's good. Thank you. Um, Ooh, had, you se- had you seen the movie when you saw I the musical? I didn't see the movie until like maybe a couple years after I saw the musical. So mm-hmm. I saw the musical first and then went back and wasn't sorely disappointed by the movie, but definitely prefer the musical. The, yeah. the movie is, except for this, I think right up to the premise like right when Sherry Renee Scott or Glenn Headley, as she is in the film, and she's Glenn mm-hmm. Headley's a, one of my favorite actresses. She's so good in this movie. Um, right when she shows up, it's pretty much the same. The story kind of continues a little bit, and then it, there's some wild divergences that the musical makes, which I think are good. I think they're uh-huh. stream. They, they kind of simultaneously open the story up and shrink it down in yeah. a really nice way by combining some characters and narrowing the scope a little bit. Mm-hmm. It it focuses in uh, on the story and ends up being a little bit m- less of a – I mean, the movie is essentially one of those rolling 80s comedies where, like, people are terrible to each other and the wealthy yeah. people are the ones we're supposed to side with, which is such a weird thing in the 80s. That, like, we're always supposed to side with the rich people, which is definitely not the, the vibe these days. <laughs> Reaganomics. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, isn't, like, being rich fun? And it's like probably, but yeah. but 
I wouldn't know what that's like. <laughs> but this is the, so yeah. This is the funny thing. Listen, like so. I I I've never seen the show. I I heard it when it came out. Um, though not well. I've said before on this show, like I, I on this podcast, I have a like a David Yazbek sized hole in my music theater knowledge, which is being filled by this podcast, which is excellent. Um, so I'd heard the show, but I got to say. One of my and I love obviously Norbert Leo Butts and Sherry Renee Scott and John Lithgow and obviously being a last five years fan it was awesome that they were like on Broadway together and all that like that uh-huh. was so cool, but I I really found that like my least favorite song in the show I think is Great Big Stuff. I want a mansion with a moat around which I will float with some vast bottom babies in my glass bottom boat a house in the Bahamas. Silk pajamas, poker with Al Roker, and our friend Lorenzo Llamas. Give me great big stuff. I really do deserve it. Great big stuff. With servants who will serve it. Great big stuff. I don't give a damn what it's for. Every day's my birthday. Every night is my birthday. Hey. Which was like the big hit that came out of this show. Because Norbert Leo Butts won the Tony, like that was the Tony performance they did. That was the song that like you kept seeing when they do talk shows and things. And it's it is without question my least favorite song in the entire musical. I, I think it's the weakest one, yeah. and it's more about the way that Norbert Leo Butts performs it. Yes, yes. And it's also um, because he's got that talk singing thing that's going on, you know, mm-hmm. with like. My own personal Zamboni, you know, <laughs> um, which I, I think when we're so used to musical theater, having this like, like being, you know, every, when you break out into song, you're breaking out into song. Mm-hmm. This kind of lives in that uh, middle world. That's not quite Rex Harrison because Norbert Leo Butz has like an incredible range and incredible mm-hmm. charisma as a performer. But yeah, it's not the best written song. I think it's probably the production value that goes into like the third song on the album, like that early on in the show. And they're mm-hmm. already, throw, you know, like pulling out the stops. Right. It really does feel, I mean, cause it's obviously the, I want song in, in the show. Uh, for, mm-hmm. for his character, because he's literally asked by John Lithgow, "What do you want?" and he answers that yeah. question for four minutes. I think I, is that why you hate it though, because it's so like one to one. It's like, "What do you want?" and it's like, "I like." There's no nuance to it. Well, ex- I think that's the character though the too. Sh- yeah, and that's the show. Like the show is a capital M musical and makes no bones about that from the beginning, which is pretty much with the exception of Band's Visit. What David Yazbek writes, he writes mm-hmm. musical. I mean, only adapts movies, mm-hmm. and he writes big musicals with big, you know, musical moments in it, and that's his jam. And he, and it, like I say, he he makes no bones about it. So even from the opening of "Give Them What They Want," it's very clearly, and then the song that follows it, like it is a musical. You have no question mm-hmm. about that. So I don't have a problem with John Lithgow saying, "What do you want?" and him saying, "What do I want?" and then singing about what he wants. Several times listening to this, like I listened to it a couple times to talk to you about it. I was struck by God, these are really good lyrics. These are really good lyrics. And that one just feels very clunky. Mm-hmm. And I kind of think it's supposed to, ultimately. I think it's because his character's unrefined, his character's gaudy, he's vulgar, and the song is disconnected and a little mm-hmm. not atonal, but not fun to listen to. But it's so like it's doing its job. 
but I don't like it. <laughs> and it's the song that I kept hearing over and over again when this song was out because it was the big but song. I, I think it's exactly what you said, though, is that like it's so character driven with every single aspect of it. Like the fact that it, he drives the song the entire time mm-hmm. uh, and it's kind of got this progression of like, you know, getting bigger and bigger and bigger and like not like key changes are happening, but like, he, you know. Uh, the music changes so much and then all of a sudden there's a chorus coming in just being like great big stuff great <laughs> big stuff you know? it's like I, I think it it's horrible because it's not great but it also speaks so much to the character and who mm-hmm. they are that like I mean exactly what you said but you're right there's no nothing refined about it um as opposed, I don't know, I'm thinking about the next song, like the last night I met a prince and said, like that yeah. is, is, so, is, is one of my favorite songs. Um, and the realization of like all these women that like oh i'm not the only one like how did you get on stage and maybe that's a staging thing that also is so delightful that i remember that like joanna gleason bless her you know she's like downstage right in this beautiful light in her sparkly you know dress singing about john lithgow and then all of a sudden littering on stage are other women in the exact same light in different scenarios like one's a waitress one is like also in another sparkly dress and like joanna gleason continuing to sing and like looking over her shoulder like where did where did that where'd you come from who are you (laughs) this is my song (laughs) which i'm not sure is like it's probably not relevant or not not totally present in the uh in the cast recording but again a delightful moment of the staged version or the original stage version oh and it's a problem with a song getting picked out of a show too that Mm -hmm. like great great big stuff is great in the moment in the show like it's 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 right there but like if you if you play it over and over and over and over again you just end up which is where I ended up like disliking it. So like I said, I never really dug into the show and I was really happy to dig back into it and discover the sort of like, (laughs) I mean, it has one of my favorite moments of any cast album ever, which is John Lithgow saying, hello, this is John Lithgow with a slight heads up to you listeners out there. If you haven't yet seen Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, the remaining tracks contain a few twists and turns of plot that could spoil your full enjoyment of the show. So turn off your stereos, go order tickets, hire the babysitter, and come back at a later date. If you have seen the show, please play on, and then order tickets to see it again. Preferably at full price. I have children in college. And a mortgage. And I'm a bit of a clothes horse. Thank you. Brilliant. Yes. Thank, it's like, so thank good. you. It's Trigger so warning. It is. It's <laughs> or so spoiler good. alert, rather. It's spoiler alert. <laughs> it is, and it's so... I also... This is a funny thing that memory does, because this show's like, you know, 15 years old. I I thought it wasn't a hit. I just sort of remember like I won a Tony for Norbert Leo Butts and then it like closed. I and uh-huh. I was conflating it I realize now with Catch Me If You Can cuz this show ran for like 2 years. It mm-hmm. ran for a while and yeah. did very well. So that had some great replacements and did all so this was a hit and I just yeah. did not remember that at all. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I just listened to the cast recording on repeat. Like, we used to listen to it 
uh, in the car on the CD, like any road trip we went to, I don't ever think we, I don't think we ever saw it again, like in the national tour mm-hmm. or like ever going back up to New York. I wonder if we caught it like towards the end mm-hmm. of the run. So this was like a big musical in your family, that even after you saw it, like it continued to be mm-hmm. something that would be on the Colburn family vacations. This was all, this was all. Literally. <laughs> Literally. So were you in theater in high school? Like, was this something? Obviously, if you guys went to the TKTS <gasps> oh, and saw yes. a bunch of shows, like this was obviously in your in yes. your mix. Yeah. So you were a theater. Oh kid? yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Uh huh. I yeah. It's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was a big theater nerd, and not like I've calmed down at sure. all. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> it's think something so. I never grow out of. Were you a performer at this age, or were you still? Had you already? I was. Back to, were you okay? What was that? What did that? Look I was like? a bossy performer. Oh, okay. So director in training. Then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's just what we call that. You know, call that a director in training. You're on your way. <laughs> That's exactly correct. Yes. I mean, but here I am. What a great, what a great audition song. Cincinnati The morning flight A major bore But then They open the cabin door And suit to lore Here I am Lord knows I had the will And the resources But mom and dad Kept saying Hold your horses I guess those ponies Couldn't wait Pardon me folks But they've left the gate I may be late But here I mean, is it though? Like, you really, mm. I feel like she, Sherry Renee Scott is constantly up there in that like higher register, and there really isn't a money note. The money note isn't any different than any of the other notes I think she's singing in that song. So, your your whole your whole family was in theater though? If you were going obviously up to New York to TKTS to see shows and things like that, was it everybody was a big fan or did people work in so theater? So, I, I'm know? the only performer in my family. My dad's a sculptor in DC and my mom's a mm. nurse. So, my, like, my dad obviously is an artist, so he has a great appreciation for the arts. And my mom, uh, you know, loves musical theater. Um, so it was one of those things that once I started showing an interest for it, they were like, yes, because we like this too. So it's always been um, it's always been something that we can all do together is like go to the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, constantly. I feel like it's not just musicals. It's also been plays. And they're always very supportive of the work that I do here in D.C. And also when I was up in New York. Um, yeah, you're I mean, I the Colburns, uh, I think, are going to be more of a staple at more things. because yeah. They love stuff and they love talking to people like I don't think they came to Velveteen Rabbit. But I guarantee that if they did and you were there, my dad would be the first person to walk up to you and like <laughs> talk to you about it and okay. have a lot of great thoughts. And my mom would also be standing right next to him and like offering things whenever she could get a word in edgewise (laughs) but they love I mean they love talking to artists and like we always used to stand by the stage door too and like try to get autographs and I know that my mom would have like had conversations with any of these people (laughs) you know even though they're busy they're like hi I'm just trying to go home right she'd be like no I need to speak to you about your art (laughs) Well, that's, I mean, that's, well, that's really great to grow up with that hold. So you were never discouraged from going into the arts, obviously. It was, uh, your parents were never, never questioning that decision. That was all good for them. That's good. Yeah. I I mean, yeah, for better and for worse. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sure. Because now here you are in the arts and 
<laughs> and all that that entails, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wait, so when when you were, what was it about specifically Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? Obviously, as a theater kid and someone who'd seen a bunch of musicals and, and did shows, what was it about Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, though, that you think galvanized like all of you yeah. together in this, as, as a very special show for your family? Um, well, I'm trying to think, like, what, was that i mean aside from the music i i really feel like it was the first musical that none of us got tired listening to together Mm. at the very end Mm -hmm. so i also think there was a high production value as well that like even at 15 before i knew i wanted to be a director designer i was like super interested in the staging and the uh and like the production design and the ways that they were able to accomplish certain things. Like there's like a mini train scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like I think when the two con men are on the train together and like the way that they, I don't even remember, like maybe there was a cranky, but there was definitely like the train slid on stage and all of the actors were like bouncing and then they all stopped at the same time. Um, Yeah. I feel like that's, those are some of the things that I remember most is like the production value. Obviously the twist at the end is so delightful. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a, like a true moment of theater where the entire like room gasps. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Cause I good thing for people who maybe didn't know the movie, but I do remember that like for that twist at the end, like the entire theater was like, Oh, like (laughs) truly. Yeah. So I wonder if that's it. I mean, the other thing I think, like I mentioned earlier is like seeing my dad just like gasping for air, Mm -hmm. just from laughing so hard Um, and finding a connection. It's like another, yeah. yeah, Finding a connection and like common ground with parents. Well, something else I noticed listening to this, and I wonder how you felt about this. uh, There are certain, aspects of this show that have not aged great um like everything well that's my thing of it so like con men start with a big thing i think because there's a lot of minutiae in the plot that isn't great but is very i mean it's obviously based on an 80s movie but the 80s movie itself is based on a movie from the 40s um oh so like this aspect of two men having this competition over a woman that eventually gets sexual is not atypical for comedies in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s now. Like, it continues, as a, obviously. And it's gross, and yeah. But the larger thing I was surprised by was the fact that, like, con men stories have been around forever. And at this period of time, though, we were especially at the, like, Ocean's Eleven, you know, mm. at, like, con men movies were sort of becoming a thing again for a little bit. And I imagine when the show was financed, there was kind of that aspect of it. Be like, oh, it's like Ocean, you know, like, these guys are con men, just like in Ocean's Eleven. People are like, oh, that's fun. Um, but I find, and I wonder how much of this is because of, like, the last five years of our lives, how con men aren't funny to me right now. In fact, they're horrible. Like, I don't want to see a story about con men. <laughs> doing anything to anybody did you have that same experience yeah when i (laughs) yeah when i went back and i listened to it i was like oh yeah con men not a great uh (laughs) not a great premise Ooh, (laughs) making fun of folks uh who don't have the same like accessibility you know and like ableism like which is a huge part of i forgot how much of the comedy of the comedy of this is based on the fact that Emilio Butts, Butts plays two different con characters, both of whom are differently abled, and it's just yes. like, 
Oh man, like and like that moment, sort of like that church like miracle moment where love is my legs, and yeah. like all of a sudden he breaks from it. Right? Is I mean, no, this musical has not aged well. Like we would never do this today. I think that you would be consoled if you were to do it. But it's also weird because all the songs that I remember are actually not the ones that have anything to do with like some of the ableism challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know. Um, I think, I mean, who knows why? Maybe because I'm more familiar with the first act or I remember those more than the second act. Um, but mm, should we do this? Should we spoil the end of it? I think, people- I think we can spoil the end of this show. I don't, I, I think that, well, it's, like I said, it's 15 years old. Like, it, yeah. you know, and if you don't want to be, if you don't want to have the ending of this show spoiled, uh, I've spoiled way worse endings than this So on this show. So, yeah, go ahead. Great. Rock in the roll. words of John Lithgow, if right. you continue on with this podcast, right. there is a spo- there spoiler. There is a spoiler, yes, from here on out. <laughs> um, but I guess, like, one redeeming fact is, you know, even though it's these two men conning this one young woman and, like, the sexual nature of it, guess what, people? Mm-hmm. She's actually the biggest con man of all of them. And yes. she's orchestrated this huge thing. She is the jackal right. who they set up earlier on is like being like the ultimate con person who also happens to be in the French Riviera. But right. they constantly refer to the jackal, I think, as a he, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Well, because one so of the bits that... in it is that John Lethgow thinks Norbert Leo Butts is the jackal when he first meets him. And that's why right. he starts to like follow him around and then discovers very quickly that he isn't. But it is a sort of general conceit of the show that the jackal is yeah. somewhere nearby. And it's very well done that they bring it up a lot at the beginning of the musical and then they drop it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you forgot about it by the time it comes becomes important again, if you're, yeah, if they're doing it right. Yeah. And that's like, that was that collective gasp. Like yeah. that's, I think that's some good writing. I don't know if they do that in the musical, but yeah, they just let it go for a while because this uh, Christine, the character becomes like the object of their affections. And all of a sudden they're like, you know, they stop conning like her and now they're trying to con each other a little bit more because she's like they want her attention more right. so um yeah but like oh that when she's just like like you know sorry boys like <laughs> i won love the jackal right and the whole audience is like gasping for breath and like <laughs> yes sherry renee scott <laughs> you're the best <laughs> what well, does also have the thing i'm realizing as i'm thinking about other con men or con movies that I like, there is sort of this rule when you're doing something about thieves in general, that Mm -hmm. if you want them to be your heroes, the person they're stealing from has to be worse than they are. Right. So like in Oceans, they establish that Andy Garcia is like the worst criminal in the world. And then even, they keep escalating it. If you watch the Ocean sequels, like in Ocean's 13, like Al Pacino plays, no, really the worst. Like they keep being like, no, this guy's the worst criminal in the world. But so that you... You have someone to root for. You're like, oh, I can root for the con artist because they're stealing from a guy who's bad. Yeah. And in this, obviously, it turns out that she's actually conning them. Like it gets, but but like the whole journey there, you don't know that. Yeah. So what you think you're watching are two con men try to steal money from a woman who is very wealthy and can afford it, probably, but like still has is is perfectly innocent. Like has nothing. She's done nothing wrong to anybody. She's not abhorrent. She's lo- in fact, she's sweet, and she's she's mm-hmm. she likes them both, and she does. You know, it seems to, and, and like, and so open hearted and open minded, and you're just like, 
you're lovely. Guys, leave her alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's it, too, is that they're like, oh, my gosh, like, what are we doing this for? You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then right. they all become business partners. It all gets turned. Well, right. And then the end, it has the great musical comedy ending where they all go into business to, to rob more wealthy people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, exactly what you're saying is like that Robin Hood, uh, like mm-hmm. mythos, right? Mm-hmm. Of like uh, in Ocean's Eleven. I'm trying to think and catch me if you can, because again, another like con well, man. Yeah, he's mainly, happening at the same time, right? He's mainly steal. Well, that's a true story, so you get a mm-hmm. little bit more of a a break with a true story. I think always. Right. He's also stealing from banks. Ultimately, mm-hmm. he's he's writing bad checks, so he's not like. Stealing money from people. He's not mm-hmm. robbing funds. He's he's writing bad checks. The banks are insured by the federal government. That's why the FBI is the one after him. Like it, so it's a little bit easier, I think, to stomach. Yeah. Um, but like, I mean, the best con artist story movie for me, anyway, is and I don't know if you've seen this movie, The Sting, from The Sting with Mm-mm. Redford and Newman. It's from nineteen seventy four or five, I think. It is. An amazing con story because it's about two con men who are trying to get revenge on a gangster who killed one of their friends. So, like, you have excellent motivation from the beginning. Like, why you want to see them take this guy down because he's terrible. Like, he's a really, really bad person. And, yeah, I was – but I was really struck also because, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but in Great Big Stuff (laughs) – I'm tired of being a chump I wanna be like Trump 200 pounds of caviar And one gigantic lump Which in 2005 would have Means one thing and now means something entirely I I really wonder if that came Like if you get the script if they've changed that And I wouldn't surprise me if they have Like wonder it, let's call David up. Let's. Well, it's just so loaded now. I kept thinking that, like, it's even if you were like, oh, we can leave it because it's funny. It's like, it's like I don't. It's it, not funny. It's not funny, and I don't think it will ever be funny again. Like, it's so loaded now, and I get what he's saying, especially in the, if this takes place in the '80s. Like, I get that. Like, it's a very iconic rich guy for America, but like, yeah, it doesn't. It does not mean the same thing it meant uh-uh. then. Uh, to paraphrase Inigo Montoya, I don't think it means what you think it means. I uh, uh, yeah uh, no, uh, and it really dated. <laughs> yeah, and it so when you added that to the con men to the like the ableism to the, the fact that like they changed the bed at one point for trying to steal money to which one of them can sleep with her first, which is right. just so gross. Is Mm-mm. that was the when that happens? That's the moment where I was sort of like, all right, guys, you got to stop. Like you can't have yeah. all of these things. This is one too many. <laughs> You've got to yeah. keep it. Monumental Theatre Company's Songs for a New World is available to stream on demand now. The 2018 version of the Jason Robert Brown musical features powerhouse vocals and a moving collection of musical theatre favorites like King of the World, Stars in the Moon, and I'm Not Afraid of Anything. Don't miss the show DC Metro Theatre Arts calls Breathtaking and Incredible. Available now at monumentaltheatre.org. More information in the show notes. like hopes that the fact that she's been conning them the whole time like resolves the entire musical which is obviously not true (laughs) well it almost i mean it does in the room i think if you're watching it it might because they get their comeuppance but like you said then she comes back so like their lifestyle is vindicated so it only goes so far but on the album it really doesn't because you don't have that release in the same way of being in the theater yeah um 
if so, anything, yeah. it's just like, oh shit, she's a bad guy too. Right. And it is really that moment. Like, is everybody a bad guy? Like mm-hmm. who's not? Well, of course. And then to offset it, you have the lovely love story between <gasps> uh, Joanna Gleason and um, Gregory Jabara uh, playing Andre, and it is which is just fun and nice and reminded me a lot of. Um, uh, oh man, what's the movie? The Princess Diaries is that the movie with uh, oh mm-hmm. where when uh, Julie Andrews um, and is it Hector Alessandro yeah. plays the bodyguard yeah. and they fall in love in the movie like that was like, it reminded me of that of like these two side characters that we really ever invested in like turn out to have a nice romance I was like oh this is fun I like this yeah this is getting I me think- through. Okay, two points on that. Sure. One is that I feel like that's another fun redeeming quality of the musical that wasn't necessarily there in the movie. That it's like across this class divide too. Like she's this ridiculously mm-hmm. wealthy woman living on the French Riviera, and he's a butler to mm-hmm. like a con man. So I feel like that's that's just su- such a lovely bridge in the same way that the um, that like the Julie Andrews and the um, Hector, oh my gosh, what did you say his last uh, Hector, name was? I, I believe it's Hector Elizondo. I also, so then here's just like a personal moment, like watching that particular love story, and again at 15, it it's such, it's so pure and it's so lovely and it's got that like old, hot, like old musical sort mm-hmm. of like, you know, uh, hoppity grapevine feel to it. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that I was, but they're also older characters and it was like, it was a realization for me that you can fall in love at any age and it's not gross mm-hmm. <laughs> for a 14 or a 15 year old. Sure. Um, Cause that, I mean, that's, that's yeah. the best. That's one of the, that's one of the more delightful, like heartwarming moments, like pure heartwarming moments in the musical mm-hmm. as opposed to the laugh out loud. Oh my gosh. Everybody's a con artist. Right. Like literally, like, like literally nothing, everyone's a con artist. And maybe that's what it is with everybody conning each other and lying to one another in the midst of all this chaos is just like two people who like, you know, truthfully fall in love. Mm -hmm. And two people who you have, who you know. One of the things that yeah, I appreciate about David Yazbek's musicals is he really does do a nice job of creating short, concise character songs for secondary characters Yeah, that get right to the heart of who they are and how he wants you to feel about them. I mean, you know, Chimp in a Suit is not a not a nice song. No. But he's right. Like, that's yeah. the, like, the thing I really realized listening to it more than once was that, like, he's right. He's assessed this man instantly. Mm-hmm. And, his, and his basic premise in that song is, like, if you get involved with him, this is going to go badly for you. And he's right. You dressed him up fancy and trained him to dance. He remains a chimpanzee. He's not Fred Astaire. A dandy little topper, tie on a natty cravat. Buy him a castle, he'll still be an asshole, and nothing you do will change that. He's still just a stinky little minky and a dinky little sort, and a cheap little head. And so, like, even though it's a mean song and it's very clever and funny, obviously, and suits the mood. But I liked his character because he was astute. And I like Joanna Gleason because she's a goddess. So, like, it all sort they of... They also, like, are the two characters who get a little left behind, you know, mm-hmm. with, like, Lawrence uh, teaming up with Freddie and, like, the that, like, three-way, like, love story happening is mm-hmm. like, oh, well, what 
you know, what's Lawrence didn't, uh, you know, Andre's like, Lawrence didn't listen to me. So I guess I'll just step back. And, you know, Muriel is like, well, my man left me and he's not calling me back and I don't know what's going on. And, you know, it's a little. Yeah. And then that's it. It's a it's almost like a perfect setup for those two characters, because that's kind of their that's their common not pain, but that's the commonality between them is Lawrence leaving them behind. Leaves them both behind for very Mm -hmm. different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And it really. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't thought about that. So let's let's let. So this is actually this is a good transition. I was wondering how I was going to get into this. So the artistic lead for theater at Flying V, which is for those of you who haven't been keeping up with DC theater, has been restructured to have a, a three pronged of podcasts, wrestling, and theater, and each has an artistic lead instead of having an artistic director. Um, and then we have uh, Catherine, wonderful Catherine, at the top as the executive director. And But so as the artistic lead for theater, when a show like this comes along for you, not specifically for Flying B, but just as you've been wearing this hat, that is a show that you think is great and has wonderful moments and is fun and excellent, but has some truly despicable aspects of it burnt into it that you cannot you can't extricate you can't block your way around this like these are built into the script how do you view something like that as an artistic you know as an artistic i'll use the term artistic director even though it isn't your title of of a of a of a theater like how would you address this if it came along for you that's such a great question. And that's something that, you know, stepping into this role, like I previously was a self-producer. So basically I just, I, you know, come up with something and then I find a way to do it. And I, there's either an audience for it or there isn't. So working within an organization, I have to really just take into account um, the the internal and the external stakeholders, for lack of a better word. So who within the company is upholding the aesthetic and the mission and our values as an organization? And then who are the people that walk through the door who want to, you know, who are buying into all of those things? Um, And then the company sort of in the middle who are inside and outside of the process of like, what is it that the company is known for, that it's strong for? And And then again, like those values, like what is it that we hold true to ourselves and hold ourselves accountable to? Um, And then obviously, you know, with the pandemic and being able to take the time to think about justice and restorative justice and equity and diversity and inclusion, um, you know, I can understand that I have a great love for this musical uh, and I think it's funny as hell and the music is right. Um, but I have to think, like, is this something that my audiences are going to like? And if my if this is a play that will alienate, you know, differently abled uh, folks, then it's not the play, it's not the musical for us. If, you know, it doesn't have the greatest feminist, you know, at the very end, there are some greatest, fem, you know, uh, feminine, uh, feminist, there's a feminist hero at the very end, but it takes so long to get there. And it's a brief, tiny glimmer of a moment and like, you know, what are, what is the message of this musical, right? That mm-hmm. kind of goes back to like, oh, so everybody's a con artist. Right. And I think that is kind of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like maybe you'll find love, you know, maybe you'll find love and you'll find your people, sure. you know, through through comedy and through strife and through conning. Right. <laughs> um, at the end of the day, there is always going to be someone for you as a friend, as a colleague, as a lover. Um, but there are a lot of problems <laughs> with this musical. And so that's the kind of thing that I have to look at is like, you know, as we move forward into this brave new future, like what are, what are the, what are actually the types of, uh, 
art that we want to be putting out in the world. And this was put out in the world in 2004 with all of the amazing context that you offered with, you know, we had a, an obsession with con men at that time. Like it was a, you know, that was sort of the running theme for a little bit or like a subgenre. And that's just not where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. So that being said, if something like this comes across my table, there are plenty of things that I can enjoy uh, as an artist in my own right and as an audience and a consumer. But there aren't, you know, perhaps it's not something that we want to produce, at least in our organization, or, you know, it's not the right time to produce it. I think that's the biggest question that anybody has to ask themselves, like as an artist, like, why this play now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think in this case of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, when this play ever again? <laughs> well, that, that, which was my next question, sort of, is like... So what, I mean, Kelly, this is a huge question. I'm going to say that. I'm ready. You're not going to have, like, I'm not asking you to speak for the world. But speaking for the world, what what do we do with theater like this? Mm. What do we do with these scripts? And, And what do we do with theater that is entertaining and has had a place when it had a place? and is important to us in our development as people, but really should just be put away for now or forever, possibly. Like, what what do we do with these these pieces of art? Or what do you do with them? How do you wrestle with that? Sort of, do you take it thing by thing? Or do like, how do you, how do you apply to these sort of things? I think the biggest thing that, uh, I'll preface it with this, which is that the biggest thing that I've learned coming out of the pandemic and how we treat each other as people is to, um, is to treat is to treat people and meet them where they're at, mm-hmm. you know. So at 15 in 2004, this was a perfect musical for the Colburn family because we all had uh, an amazing time listening to the music, watching the plot unfold, listening to incredible performers, you know, perform, you know, for us on a Broadway stage. And it was also a time when you know, uh, you know, folks who are of a certain privilege uh, didn't think that racism still existed, that right. like ableism, you know what I mean? Like yeah. uh, ableism, you know, all of these things were not at the forefront of our minds. And I think you just have to take things in stride. That's my answer to it. Mm. That is not the answer. Like you could, if you want to extrapolate that and take it to like, you know, uh, a complete extreme is like, well, racism sucked back in the day and segregation wasn't a great Band-Aid for, you know, uh, for, uh, you know, uh, for the way that the U.S. was running at that time. Mm-hmm. You, you have to take everything in stride. Yeah, it sucked. And nobody is saying that it didn't suck. <laughs> right. But you sort of you know, it's in the past. And are we learning from it? Or are we continuing to uh, enable that past, mm-hmm. that event, that musical, those themes? And I think it's the it's the it's enabling that behavior. It's by doing something like this. I feel like I'm enabling the behavior that was uh, of 2004, mm-hmm. which is not the behavior and the etiquette and the way that we want to be treating people in 2021. So where do, what do we do with things like this? I think we accept it for where it was in time, accept everybody's relationship to it, um, and try to uh, learn from it. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be doing musicals like this anymore. No. It's not, you know, uh, there. it's so problematic. And the music is catchy. But right. why don't we change, you know, wh- where's the, who's our next, like, uuh, who's our next like musical theater writer who's going to write catchy music 
about really challenging issues that we should be tackling. Like that's the flip side of it. I think mm-hmm. that's the, you know, the 2020 through 2050 thing, Question. you know, yeah. like let's, let's write catchy tunes to really challenging subjects. Whereas mm-hmm. before, you know, it was just catchy tunes for, you know, catchy things sure. for glossed over things. Well, the answer is Michael R. Jackson. He's the one out there writing catchy songs about challenging material. If you, if writing you this down. If you haven't heard A Strange Loop, you need to hear A Strange Loop right now. And I think it is we let it live in the past, but it be accessible so that we can, you know, uh, we can reach for it when we need it. You know, if it's nostalgia or if it's uh, escapism. Um, so that we can live in the real world a little more efficiently. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's really that, like it, it's just that terrible thing, like not to get too like media studies on everybody, but it's that thing of like um, the Marshall McLuhan quote, famous quote, the medium is the message, meaning that like how mm-hmm. you absorb the media tells you how you're supposed to absorb it. Mm-hmm. And when everything is coming at you through your phone, like literally, yeah. when there is no disparate, you know, no differentiation. Like, you know, I watched old sitcoms that my parents used to like, you know, like I, I watched MASH because it was on at, at five o'clock in the afternoon every day. And I, I that was segregated from the evening sitcoms, which were new from, the, you know, there was a clear like delineation of the old and the new. And we really, really don't have that anymore. And I think that it's doing everybody a disservice because you can't, like you say, you can't just put it away. It has yeah. to be browsable. It has to be accessible immediately. And they can't like, they can't hide it on a, on a mm-hmm. higher shelf. You know, like it doesn't, it doesn't exist even in that capacity. And especially yeah. since they took everything from that, you know, four by three TV I grew up with and widescreen everything. Now it all even looks kind of the same as it did. And it can be immersive too if you right. have that curved screen. Exactly. Yeah. It can absorb you in that way. Yeah. So it's just like, it's everywhere all the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sort of tangential, sort of divergent, but bouncing off of this a little bit. Uh, I was last summer I participated in like the orchard project had like a a summer residency that was talking about did like how we embrace the digital uh, Mm -hmm. during the pandemic as theater live theater makers and artists. Um, And one of the very first panels that they had, I remember there was a gentleman who was a brain scientist um, and was uh, conducting experiments that uh, sort of were, how do we, ingest information and how do we consume media and uh what they found by like hooking up you know different things to people and monitoring heart rates and where their eyes are going and like brain function is that watching something on a television or watching something live you're uh you're so stimulated by so many different things that actually your brain is functioning at its highest capacity Mm. because you're having to engage with the live thing that you're uh witnessing on stage you are sort of uh, you're in the audience with the heartbeat of everybody else there's if there's also a musical component you're you're orally being stimulated uh, versus when you're just like watching a TV. I think this goes back to exactly what you said of like uh, the, what is it? The medium, the medium uh, is the message. In, yeah. The medium is the message. And when the message is this like four, three screen or the 16, nine screen, like it doesn't matter how large or big it is. It's more carefully curated 
then you uh, it's so carefully curated that actually your brain is not working to understand it in the same kind of a way as you do a live performance Mm -hmm. and like literal studies that show like here's where people's eyes are moving you know here's how the brain lights up when certain things happen you know um and what was this all to say Mm. this is all to say that like having all of these like different types of uh the, all these different types of digital media be accessible to us 24 7 uh is probably turning us into vegetables a sure. little bit yeah. and we should get out of the house and you know use our eyes and uh use our ears in different ways that would be nice yeah but... like go outside <laughs> What's that? It's so hot outside, though, right now, Kelly. Like it's it's, it's hot in my house it's right hot now. And muggy out there. I was walking home today from work, and it's just it's gross. I don't want to go outside. So, I know. Yeah, we okay, bought a um a blow up pool, which helps. Ooh, okay. Uh huh. Good start. Good start. Yeah, you can't do laps in the pool, but, <laughs> no, you, can but you can sit, sit and enjoy. It. You can sit. You can, <laughs> you can sit and enjoy an Arnold Palmer. There Arnold you go. Arnold Palmer. <laughs> That's what I was drinking in here before you came. I was drinking an Arnold Palmer. I love a good Arnold. Yes, good summer, summer drinks. Drink. Absolutely high quality, non-alcoholic summer drink. Uh, hard swinging back into dirty rotten scoundrels. <laughs> as we swing around, I feel I should ask, as I ask everyone, what is your favorite song in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? Oh, okay, hold on. I know the one that I want to say immediately, but hold on. I want to let me look at the song list and make sure that is my real answer. What was the other one I flagged? Oh, here I am. We talked about that already. God, okay, yes. Yeah. So, two favorite songs I would say okay. are Here I Am, sure. obviously. Sure. And then, yeah, Oklahoma. Yeah. <laughs> Those are my two favorite ones. I have Oklahoma stuck in. Like as soon as uh, I, I, you know, we decided that we were going to do Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, I started mm-hmm. listening to it, and then friggin' down in the panhandle where we panhandle has been stuck in my head on repeat for like weeks. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's so good. It is really like it is the rare. Well, another great thing David Yazbek does is when he writes a comedy song, he knows exactly when to stop. <laughs> Because yeah. those songs are both of those songs. Here I am in Oklahoma are short songs, mm-hmm. and do not in any way overstay. They leave you wanting more. You feel like he could have gone for another verse each, like he had oh, it yeah. in him, and he was like, "Nope, that's far enough." I I led us to the the natural conclusion here, and we're just going to get off the train, and you're mm-hmm. going to be you're going to be so happy with this uh, with this stuff. It's funny that I think that. We've universally stuck to Act One in terms of songs that we really like, except for that's, maybe like like this, like that. Like that's that's a nice that's that sweet love song. That's moment. that love one. But yeah. like the rest of it is just like I mean, it's good, yeah. but I don't, I don't, I don't know. Ugh. Yeah, Ugh. I mean Act Two is chaos because I, I yeah. feel like this is actually one of the um, rare times where Act One for me is more exciting than Act Two. I feel like sometimes when you sit in these things like act one is a little like snore fest because there's so much exposition they're setting up mm-hmm. and then act two is actually where it like literally starts to sing right but not really in dirty rotten scoundrels act two is chaos because the characters are chaos they're just like it's almost like the characters are improving, you know like as yeah. soon as you know lawrence shows up as you know schuffhausen it's like oh no <laughs> 
this is not going to go well for anybody. Like before it's kind of like, haha, whatever. And it's like, oh no, this, we're, we're about to take a, or this, this car, this uh, train car yep. is going to nutty town. It's just going, on, yeah, sure. it's completely off the rails. We are, we are on our way. And the it, other thing yes. oh, no, no, about ahead. Oklahoma is that Jolene, that character never appears ever not again. Not at all. No. She, she, she gets can. scared off by that by Ruprecht. Uh, awful Ruprecht yeah. song. Right. All about Ruprecht. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh geez. Yeah. Do I actually like this musical? Well, I would think so. You picked it. <laughs> I do love it. But when I think about like now going through again through the song list, like, you know, there was it goes back to that nostalgia thing. It is. It's like it's less. Ab- I mean, it's less about the musical and more about my experience and like my relationship with my parents. <gasps> oh yeah. I should tell my therapist about this. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Have we had a breakthrough? <laughs> Kelly, what is going on with flying V? What are we doing? And I don't ask that as a company member, tell the people what's going on. <laughs> like, what do you got? What's coming up? What's, what's going on? Listen, flying V uh, is, you know, obviously we're going through a big restructuring period, which is cathartic. It's wonderful. We're building from the ground up. We're breaking ourselves back down. It's a wonderful, big learning experience. Uh, what we have coming up, uh, I don't think we've announced yet, but uh, essentially we cannot wait to welcome back the community into shared space. Um, and more details on that coming soon. Ooh, she's teasing. Ooh. She's teasing. I'll teasing. find out about it at the company meeting in a couple of weeks. Uh, yeah. But uh, where can so where can people find you and then where can people find Flying V in the theater specifically? Yeah, that's great. Uh, where can people find me? Well, I live at seven. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, listen, I'm on Instagram and me. I occasionally post things over there. Uh, ooh, Calais. Right. <laughs> what else am I doing? Um, maybe we'll see each other in the theater someday. Um, I don't know. What do other people typically say? They're, they're socials. And if you have a website, they usually push their website. Oh, yeah, I got a website. I haven't updated it in a while. Um, KellyColburn.com. Let's see. And then for Flying V, uh, you can find us at FlyingVTheater.com. Although I do think we're going to a .org soon, which is like fancy, right? Well, let me check with Catherine before (laughs) we (laughs) (laughs) Catherine's the boss. Yes, she is. The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. Please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It's the easiest way to help the podcast grow. 
If you like movie musicals, then you have to check out patreon.com slash originalcastpod to learn about our bonus podcast, The Original Cast, at the movies. You can follow The Original Cast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at originalcastpod. Monumental Theater Company's production of Songs for a New World is available now to stream at their website, monumentaltheater.org. Special thanks to our social media manager, Bethany Zalecki. Hi, Bethany. My thanks to Kelly Colburn for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. Melanoma. <laughs> 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 <laughs>